it's very personal because you recognize that even if you weren't able to help the person in front of you at that moment, the work you do will serve somebody just like that person. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, welcome back to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. My name is Shane Tenney and glad to have you uh, join me today for the conversation we're going to have. As we start, I want to ask you to maybe remember your own career journey, whether the memory is a deep one that you need to unearth or whether it's a recent memory. I would ask you just to start by thinking a little bit about your journey when you finished your training, residency, fellowship, whatever that was, and your own outlook and mindset. How clear were you on what you wanted to do? Probably fairly clear. You probably had developed a specialty and knew where you wanted to go geographically and professionally. You probably even knew what you needed to do contracts, networking, those sorts of things. But what if you'd gotten through all that and it quickly became evident that what you were most interested in and most passionate about was not clear on how to get there? And maybe even worse, the path you were interested in, you were perceived as being just unqualified for. What would you have done then? More training? Well, my guest today, Dr. Toyasi Anwamene, found herself in exactly this situation on her path to becoming a physician scientist. Despite all the training at Northwestern University, at Duke University, she had to navigate her dream with having no real training as, in research or understanding how to find funding sources, no background in moving manuscripts through academic publishing or writing grant proposals or leading research teams or collaborations or just all the things that are part of being a clinician scientist. And yet uh, she's here today because a little chutzpah and a little perseverance and a little creativity brought her through and helped her form the path that has helped her develop the career that she's wanted. And so I'm really excited to have as I said, Dr. Toyasi Anwamene with me today to talk about her journey in becoming a physician scientist. Um, Dr. Anwamene, thank you so much for being with me today. Shane, thank you so much for having me on this show. And please call me Toyasi. All right, we'll do it. And you can call me Shane. So why don't we level set here a little bit as you and I were doing just before I pushed the record button. Can you give me a little insight into the role of clinician scientist for those who aren't familiar with this niche in medicine? Absolutely, and that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So clinicians go and do training to become clinicians, to take care of patients. And as part of taking care of patients, you find out pretty quickly that there are so many questions left unanswered. What's the best strategy, for example, for treating a patient who doesn't respond to a certain drug? Or what's the best strategy for getting someone to be able to take their drugs? Those are the kinds of things that we need answers to in clinical space, but we don't always have answers to. Clinician scientists take these clinical problems and they create questions that are actionable that they can answer so that we find out what are the best treatments for our patients. And so every clinician takes care of patients, but clinician scientists go a step further to answer questions that help us change the way we take care of patients so that we can take care of people better. And how did you find yourself 
in this category of medicine as you went through your training in hematology? What, um, <laughs> so I will tell you that. So over the course of my training, I started as a medical student going through to residency, which is three years in internal medicine. And then I did fellowship as a hematologist. Actually, I did combined hematology oncology training. And so the more you specialize, I mean, I could have gone to practice out of residency, but I chose to do a little bit specialized training in hematology and oncology. And as part of that training, research actually is part of that training program. And so there is an expectation. And to be honest, throughout my training, research has always been in the background and has always been part of really our understanding of this is how we improve patient care. And so I always had the expectation that I was going to be able to do that. But what I didn't understand was how much it actually took to be able to be successful as a research scientist. And so I did my clinical training as most physicians do. And then when I got to the point at which I thought I was going to take on a faculty position where I would be able to really move the research program forward, then I found out that I actually wasn't qualified to do that. And when we compare clinicians to PhD researchers, you know, PhD researchers spent six to seven years, sometimes more, getting their PhDs. And in the midst of that, they also have access to graduate research assistantships. They finish and they go on to do a postdoctoral training and they do that for maybe two to three years at a time. They may do a couple and then they get to their faculty positions and start building a research program. So there's definitely a gap between being a clinician and becoming a scientist it's not something that's very obvious to many of us coming through the training. So you're saying that in the clinical part of training to be a medical doctor through whether it's residency or in the fellowship program, you're getting all the training required to be a medical doctor in your field, but that doesn't include the same sorts of things that are part of like a PhD type program. And so you end up in this academic position by virtue of your degree and your training, but you're missing some of the building blocks to really thrive in research. Is that, am I tracking with you there? Absolutely. Perfectly said. I, I imagine there was, there's got to be a point of just feeling a little defeated. Like what, the what? I appreciate that you asked this question because this is something that comes up consistently for clinicians who are not aware of the deficit of their training and research. I guess if, now that I look back on it, I could see it's very obvious that there's a deficit now that I've done a little bit more research. But I think as clinicians, because you're so immersed in patient care, you're reading the literature, you're interpreting the literature, there's a sense that you're aware of what research is needed. You can interpret the research, but what gap we have is not recognizing how much really needs to come together to be able to be successful as a researcher. And so you talked about some of those things in your introduction. So it's not just conducting the research, though that's a huge part of it. It's being able to really take a big clinical problem and make it small enough to actually answer so that that piece is actionable. As clinicians, we wanna take care of patients today. We want answers that help people today, but a lot of research takes, I mean, it takes years to get to a point at which you can actually help anybody with the information that you've uncovered over the course of your research. But that's just conducting the research, knowing how to do it. There's also all the other things in that background for writing research manuscripts, knowing how to shepherd manuscripts through the publication pipeline, applying for grant funding. And, and a lot of that in for us clinicians comes through having access to mentors but goodness, many people don't have access to mentors. In fact, only 20% of academic clinicians can say that they have access to a mentor. But even for those who have access to mentors, it's a lot to ask a mentor to do, to teach you all the things that people take 10, 13 years of their life learning to do. 
And so when you start your clinical job, there is a window that you need, a space and time. So we call it protected time to learn all these things so that you can actually succeed and be competitive to get funding to move research forward. And so to some extent, the institution has to make that investment so that you can you can get the training that's needed. But it, it pretty much for many clinicians is on the job training. Yeah. So it sounds like if I'm tracking with you, uh, which hopefully I am, for you and I guess for others that uh, hopefully are listening, you go through your training and, and through that process, you get drawn to a specialty, uh, in your case, for example, hematology, oncology, which is heavily research driven and exposed to that as opposed to other specialties that just aren't, obviously that all of medicine depends on research, but aren't as intense. And so that field um, begins to uh, water the garden of the curiosity in, in your mind. I can see looking at you and I have the benefit of looking at each other right now. Our listeners um, don't. And I can just see the curiosity that spins in, in your mind, probably while I'm talking, if I'm not making sense, but um, that curiosity grows and then you end up in your job. And that's where finding, I would imagine one of the things that you probably counsel and coach on is finding a place that's going to give you the space and the resources, but the space, number one, to be able to not only do clinical work, but also foster that the interest and the curiosity and the questions that you have, and then connect or make available to you the resources that you need to guide you in those further kind of nuanced elements of research. Absolutely. And it's excitement, it's curiosity about answering questions that are relevant to help people advance in their health. And it's also a growth opportunity because, you know, by the time you get to your faculty position, you've done a fellowship, you've been training for about 10 years. You've gotten really good at being someone who can take care of someone who has a health need. You've gotten good at taking care of patients. So research kind of represents a growth opportunity because you're learning something new and you're taking your clinical knowledge and you're applying it and you're going to the next level. And it's really exciting because you're not just doing research for the sake of research and not that anybody really does research for the sake of research, but for clinicians, you're very focused on the people you've taken care of. Like every question you have has a name, has a story, has a family. And so it's very personal because you recognize that even if you weren't able to help the person in front of you at that moment, the work you do will serve somebody just like that person. It's deeply personal and it's an opportunity to really grow in that way. And yes, it's challenging because institutions don't necessarily support you to do that, or they there has to be an explicit understanding of that support so that you can move forward in that way. But unlike like me, many clinicians find out at the point at which they go to the faculty position that they're not qualified, so to speak, to be able to do that. And that's, that is what I coach on is to say, well, if you got to that position, you're not qualified, you don't have, you're not given the access. How do you create that space so that you can grow in the way that you want to? That's really interesting. After uh, we got to take a break in just a minute. And I want to ask all about the coaching that you're giving and offering to physicians that are coming through training now, or, or those are already in practice. But I want to pick up on the point you just made, which is in some ways, all research is personal. At the end, it's some it's a real life that we have the opportunity to impact. What's some of the most meaningful research that you've been involved in in recent years? Sure. I would say that one of the more recent projects that I've taken on is really trying to bring patients with a rare blood disorder to early diagnosis. This disorder is called TTP, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. And it's an interesting disease. It's a rare blood clotting disorder, but patients form really small blood clots in the brains and the kidneys and the heart, really in the most critical organs. And because it's rare, it's hard to diagnose and mortality rates are really high if you don't find people early. 
one of the reasons it's, it's most interesting to me are the patient stories, clearly, but also because the disease that predominantly occurs in women and predominantly occurs in, in communities of color. And so it's really, for me, an opportunity thinking about all the stories through the years of these patients of saying, how can we bring more people to the table to have access to all these new treatments that are being developed that are so exciting? And yet we still have patients who may not make it to the point of treatment because they're not recognized and they die early on the way to being diagnosed with a disease. And so the research I do is very, very much about bringing people to the table sooner rather than later. And that, that's exciting because I know it's impactful. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been working on TTP? Wow. So I've been a clinician in practice for 10 years. I've always been, I've always been involved in caring for patients with TTP. Yeah. And I've always answered questions along those lines. But really in terms of building a research question and answering a research question around that, I've really only stepped into this in the last one to two years. And I guess it, this highlights uh, as a non-researcher myself, I'm a communicator, I guess, which is why I'm running the, the podcast here. But as a non-researcher, it occurs to me that so much of research isn't, I'm thinking of uh, high school science classes where we have a hypothesis and a theory and a test and a solution. And uh, yes, energizer batteries do last longer or whatever the outcome is. So much of clinical research that you're involved in is just an ongoing cumulative body of knowledge and continued refinement. Absolutely. It's exactly as you say. So our goal is to bring people to early diagnosis. But the first question we have to ask is, well, what is the barrier? And we have to have a hypothesis. Is it that they are just not recognizing that they're ill early enough? or not? And then we have to drill down and answer that question and then move on to the next question. What happens when they show up to their provider? Can the provider recognize the diagnosis or not? So we're always answering really yes or no questions as we go along the way. And as you say, it's cumulative. We're building for every question we answer, it leads us actually to the next question and to the next question. And so that at the end of the day, we end up with so many more questions than we have answers, but it really is cumulative. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, or I want to talk a lot about your coaching and, and what you offer to people who just have a similar passion for research that you have. We'll be right back. Sure. Do you understand your personal cash flow? You know, the combination of your monthly income and monthly expenses. Do you ever think about how much money you made last year and wonder, where did it all go? Understanding where your money goes today is essential to creating an actionable plan to achieve your financial goals for tomorrow. Take control of your finances by downloading the free personal cash flow worksheet. The Prosperous Doc podcast is underwritten by the financial planning firm of Spa Dameron Tenney, and you can download this free personal cash flow worksheet at sdtplanning.com and click on financial resources. Don't let another month of money confusion go by when you have access to free help. Again, the website is sdtplanning.com. Click on financial resources to download the free personal cash flow worksheet. Right before the break, I was talking with Arasi about her role in the path that she's created to become a clinical researcher at Duke University. And a large part of, I know your passion, is helping to clear away the cobwebs and the obstacles for your colleagues out there who have similar passions, but just don't have the resources or the mentorship or, or those sorts of things. Talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing there through your coaching uh, work. 
Absolutely. So I will tell you that my avatar, we can say the word, is me. 10 years ago when I started my clinical career and I didn't have the training that I needed, I didn't have the resources in the space, I didn't have the mentoring. And it's such a big component of succeeding as a researcher is having access to mentoring. What I recognize is that even without mentors, there are other things that you can learn and in order to grow in this way and that it's really about how can you be strategic about what you do have, what resources are available. And what I find is many clinicians who give up and say, well, there's no mentoring, therefore I quit. And I think it's really important because the work we do is it matters and being able to care for not just the person in front of us, but generations beyond them is, is so powerful and it's so impactful. And I think it's the key to people having a successful and fulfilling career. It's in a sense, having the opportunity to pursue your dream. And so in coaching, what I really want to do is really understand what makes you tick. What are the questions that are really important to you? And many times it boils down to stories. It boils down to patients that physicians have connected to over the years, specific questions that they want to answer, but they feel like, well, if I can't find a mentor in this specific area, then I can't move forward in research in this way. Or they find a mentor who's really accomplished and they're not doing work in an area in which they actually care about. And so it's really helping people to see that, no, the question you're interested in, even if you don't have anybody around you that immediately looks like they can help you succeed, you can still move this work forward and then build a community of mentors from the people you already have access to that help you move forward. And so in some ways, it's kind of helping people open their eyes to see the gold and the treasure that's already buried under their feet, rather than the challenges that make people give up or feel like they're not able to move forward. A lot of the work I do is also around helping people build structure. And so if you are a scientist, you really are a communicator. You communicate with the scientific community. You communicate with funders to fund your work. And then you communicate with the public as you present your work. And so creating structures that allow you to consistently communicate. And that's really writing, moving your research forward, but also writing, producing content that you can share with different parties. Give me an idea. What's the persona of the physician who most typically would come to you or connect with you through your own podcast or or your website and say, Toyasi, can can you help me? Sure. Are they somebody in medical school, in training, saying, I want to get there and I'm not getting the resources? Is it somebody who's in practice who's starting to come across questions they can't answer and they want to develop or scratch this research itch themselves? What's the typical picture? Yeah, it's someone who's just starting their practice, really, or even has been in practice for a few years where they really do want to move some research questions forward. And part of the reason that that is my the group to, uh, that I coach is because you are really building your own career. You're leading your own experience. It's a little bit different when you're in training and you really are just move going through the motions of completing a program of study to be certified at the end of it. But as a faculty member, in a way, it's like you enter a choose your own adventure game and the rules are not so clear. And so you could be lost in a time world, not knowing how to move forward. And so it's really people who have the opportunity to lead their own experience and they don't know what how to move it forward or they find themselves because as clinicians, There will never be a shortage of work to do. And there's a never ending cycle of challenges that need to be addressed, but not necessarily opportunities to move forward the things that are your passion projects or the ways in which you really want to make impact. So it's really someone who's 
early in their career or even has been in practice for a few years and really wants to move research forward and has the opportunity and the ability to lead their own experience. And what are some of the things that you might say to your younger self or, or your um, your avatar, I guess your phrase, in fellowship, who's realizing, oh, I, I'm going to be graduating in June or in a year from June or something like that. And I want to make sure that I start at the right university or the right research institution. What are some of the characteristics you would encourage them to look for or questions that you would encourage them to ask when they're interviewing with that university or that academic institution? That is, that's a really great question. And I will say, actually, what it helps me think about is that I have coached fellows because it is such a critical time to be able to set yourself up right. And being able to do that prevents some of the challenges that people like me have where, where they didn't, they're not qualified. So in a sense is how do you become qualified? So some of that is recognizing early what you want to do. And I want to say for clinicians, that's really difficult because really we're just going through the motions. We're just trying to finish the training. Just give me the certificate, get me out of here. And so we're not really thinking about building our own careers. And so I think there's an opportunity early on to say, what do you want? So at the end of this training, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And I think it takes time to really figure that out. And it's an opportunity. But if you decide that you want to lead research, or if you think you might be interested in any way, shape or form, it is important to take advantage of all the opportunities you have to grow your research program, to start to really make a name for yourself in terms of being the, the thought leader in that area. So working with a mentor to move research forward that you care about. And so sometimes, especially fellows think, okay, I'll just work with somebody and we'll just publish a paper or two. I don't care about this project. But it's really from the very beginning, start with what you care about. And I think that's really important. Then when you get to the table and you're negotiating your faculty job, you want to know that you're going to be supported to actually lead research. You want to know that you have the resources to lead research. So one of the challenges I ran into was that while people said, hey, of course, we'll support you to do research, there wasn't there were no resources really important to me to be able to do that. So do you have the time? Do you have the protected time? Do you have the finances? Because you're not a clinician bringing in revenue clinically is somebody funding your salary so that you are able to do this, the research building, the training that's necessary? Do you have access to mentoring or access to mentoring programs? And do you have access to coaching as well? And so those are the things that fellows have the opportunity to negotiate when they're going into a, a job. Because what does happen is sometimes people, you know, I coach people to be able to lead research programs, and then they find that their programs are not going to support them to make that transition and then they have to make a move. That's a lot of investment to have to make a move. So knowing that you're in a place that will support you and that you have access to the resources is critical. Yeah, much better to, if possible, go in with your eyes wide open, make a good decision up front, than get frustrated and have to start over or leave. Absolutely. Yeah. When you talk about just, I'm curious just for you to unpack a little bit more what you mean by the word resources. And even the notion we you're talking about just compensation and things like that, because, of course, so much of medicine now is on relative value units and RVUs and productivity. But when you're in research, you're not doing that type of productivity. And so how does the math work that supports the salary and those sorts of things? I know the word resources means a lot more than that, but I'm just kind of curious for because 
I'm aware of it because there are so many young physicians who don't understand how compensation really works at the hospital or the university system. And then you get kind of blindsided by a contract that you feel like you have to sign because you can't negotiate with Goliath. And so away we go. Absolutely. It's a great question. And I think you're right. It's not just the compensation aspect of it, though that's a big deal. So yes, how do clinicians make money in in academic medical centers? They make money usually by seeing patients. The one thing that's interesting is as a researcher, you're taking time out from that. So you're not able to make money in that way. And in a sense, the investment of your institution is that, well, I know that I'm making this investment and five, seven years down the road, this person is going to be able to bring in research funding that pays for their research and also supports the institution. And so those are the F&A costs, facilities and administration costs that come in with research funding. But usually clinicians are nowhere near able to pull in that kind of funding when they first start. So it really is an investment. However, most clinicians who do research still continue to see patients. It's not a big part of the portfolio, but they do. And part of negotiating the resources that help you succeed is that how do you, how are you able to do clinical work where you're still able to generate RVUs and focus on your research at the same time? Many times clinicians get stuck doing work that's more clerical, that doesn't actually necessarily support revenue generation, then makes the time that they spend seeing patients actually feel like less valuable. Uh, For example, maybe you're spending all day calling prior authorizations, and that's great because it helps patients get what they need, but those are not the things that kind of build the clinical revenue that supports your clinical salary. And so part of my coaching is also helping people maximize the value of their clinical time so that they get the maximum benefit out of that. But part of negotiating resources is also making sure that you are optimized to do both things. And so when you're in the clinic, do you have the resources to be clinically productive? And when you are doing the research, do you actually have the resources to be research, to be productive research-wise? I think many clinicians think that they're there to do everything by themselves. And to be honest, in training, most of training, you are your own resource. But really it's helping people see that They're not here just to do any of the work by themselves, what they are here to do, and really what clinician training allows you to do, or clinical training allows you to do, is to build teams. You're building teams. You're building research teams. You're building clinical teams. And your work is really to see yourself as someone who resources others to support you to do the highest value work. And so the things you learn in doing that for research are also critical to what you learn in doing and in the clinical aspect of things as well. That's pretty interesting because I feel like so much of medicine is on creating an excellent physician. And so much of the training is not geared on building an excellent team. But that sounds like such a fundamental piece of being an excellent researcher. Absolutely. How do you learn to build teams? It's a fundamental piece of clinical training as well. So for example, when we start, say, my internal medicine residency training, I started as the intern who's doing everything. And then I graduate to be the junior resident who's leading the intern, one or two interns, to do work. And then I graduate to be the third-year resident who's now leading the team. And your team is not just the clinicians you're working with. It's your the pharmacists who work with you. It's a social worker. So to be honest, clinical training really is about leading teams. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's interesting that then we get into faculty positions and we feel like, well, I'm just supposed to do this all by myself. And to be honest, I think our academic medical centers don't always do a great job 
of resourcing clinicians to continue to build on that leadership. And I think that may be why there's a lot of burnout too, because it's like, well, I've been exponentially growing over the last three years of my training. And now I get to a point where I'm just doing the same things over and over again. But research leadership is the same thing. Your job really is to set the direction of a research program and to help people come alongside you to do that work. And as someone who looks for funding, you're looking for funding to support the team that does the work so mm-hmm. that you ultimately are not the one even really doing any work in your program. You're just leading the direction of the work. You're creating jobs essentially through your research program. It's kind of like building a business really. And so a lot of it is recognizing that It's not enough just to work to get better at doing the research. It's great that you do, but it's how do you even build collaboration so that you short circuit some of that training that you didn't get, or at least you take shortcuts to be able to still succeed. And some of that is by leveraging team and collaborations and other people's teams as well. Yeah. Tarasi, you have accomplished so much. And we were talking before the show about just some who have really helped you to grow and thrive. And I'm curious if, just to give you a chance to shout out um, if there's somebody coming to mind that has been instrumental in your own journey. Absolutely. And that person I would say is Betty Pace. So Dr. Betty Pace is a physician scientist. She's at Augusta University. She's actually director of a National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute-sponsored research program. It's called the PRIDE program. And really what that program does is it allows, it gives funding for people who are underrepresented in in medicine to be able to start to work towards building research programs. And so her program, when I participated, it was the very first time I feel like my eyes were open to all the strategies that are that are needed to succeed in research. So it's kind of like there's a process. And when you know the process, you can do the work to move the process forward. Betty Pace was the first person who really opened my eyes to the possibilities. And so, I mean, she continues to be an amazing mentor and she's a mentor, not just to me. I mean, she's had over a hundred people pass through her program. She's recognized as, and she's been recognized by the American Society of Hematology as a great mentor. But yeah, she really, really, I would say if I trace back my real awakening and research, it really comes down to Betty Pace. That is Fantastic and a, a beautiful story. So, uh, Dr. Betty Pace, we applaud you here on the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Tarasi, we've talked about your coaching and your passion for helping others. If there's somebody listening who'd love to track you down or get in touch with you, how can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm uh, on all social media platforms. I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to get in touch with me, uh, Lemina, And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram as well. Perfect. And if you didn't pick up the phonetic spelling there, we'll put it all in the show notes so that everybody can track you down. Um, Dr. Toyosi Anwamana, thank you um, for making time to be on our show. And ultimately, thanks for just what you are doing to the community of healthcare in your community and in our country by helping it get better and better. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. And thank you for being here, for listening. Um, If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. So thanks for giving us your time, whether you're walking or working out or doing dishes or whatever has got your day filled. Um, Thanks for being part of our conversation. Uh, If you have any suggestions for guests or topics or things that might be interesting to talk about to those wearing white coats, you can email me directly, shane at uh, prosperousdoc.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you back here next time. 
This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.